Thank you, Kristen. Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. And before we dig into the text of God's Word, I would like to offer another prayer for us today. Dear Lord, we thank you for your saving and sustaining mercy upon us through the storm of this week and through many other experiences seen and unseen through our lives. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins and give today new beginnings in your grace. That through Christ, you would be the lifter of our head and that we would press on to your high calling in his mighty name. Lord, help us to live lives that point to how great you are in days of hurricanes and viruses. We thank you for your redeeming love that we know in Jesus, his sinless life, his death on the cross as our mediator, his full forgiveness because his tomb is empty and the promises that he would never leave us or abandon us. We, we praise you, Lord, that we have a living hope in this world. We pray, Lord, for needs in this body, for Jacob and Katie Hanbury and the care of their daughter Livy, who's been sick this week with serious um, concerns. We're thankful for your hand upon them. We pray for Jerry and Jamie Trisler, not only suffering damage from the storm, but Jamie experiencing uh, recurring heart uh, problems. We pray that you would meet their needs today. For Gail and Patsy Richardson, who celebrated their 81st uh, wedding anniversary this week and are still without electricity. We pray, Father, for Jeremy and Summer Starnes, for the Bergerons and others who have sustained damage to their homes and that you would supply their needs. Lord, we thank you for the disaster relief team that's staying here and those that have come to our area to help. Bless their efforts and may practical helps be accompanied with love and good deeds in your mighty name. We ask for grace and strength to be given for those who work in hospitals, for doctors and nurses and patients and their families as they deal with the demands and the heartbreak of COVID-19. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in Christ and that we would look to you for everything, that we would not live clueless, but our faith would be informed by the scriptures and you would inspire confidence within us to stand upon Jesus Christ, the solid rock. We pray for sister churches in, our, in the Baton Rouge area and Ascension Parish, for gospel partners around the world, that, Lord, you would increase our resolve to be faithful to the faith once for all delivered to your people. And now open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm calling this message this morning, The Harvest Has Passed, The Summer Is Over, and We Are Not Saved. With the rhythm of the seasons, uh, the ending of summer is a reminder of our need to be right with God. On a regular occasion between the end of August and Labor Day, I'm reminded of this verse in Jeremiah. It seems timely. I'm reminded of this statement. The harvest is past. The summer's ended and we are not saved. These words were spoken by the people in a moment of anguish. It was a, a proverb expressing that their God-given opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord had passed. It was a statement of great despair and loss. 
because of their refusal to turn to the Lord, God's judgment through the Babylonians primarily in this case had come upon them. Throughout their history, Israel's greatest enemies were not the Egyptians or the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Israel's greatest enemies were the false prophets who stood in the gates and proclaimed what the people wanted to hear. However, Jeremiah was not cut from that cloth. He was not a prophet of duplicity. He preached what some would say, hey, that's a downer message. We don't want to hear that. He preached um, hard. He preached hard messages to a hard-hearted people, which leads to conflict every single time. When Jeremiah confronted the sins of his people, he was persecuted. When he called the nation to repent, he was brought into the crosshairs of their disdain and their ridicule. So Jeremiah's one-tracked message, repent and turn to the Lord, was grating on the nerves of many. I mean, how many times do we need to hear about our sins, Jeremiah? As many times as it takes to get you to repent is the answer. But they never did. They never did. But faithful prophets don't custom craft their messages to please the people. Jeremiah preached for 40 years with little response. He would not likely be invited to an evangelistic conference to be a speaker. Yet his prophecy, 52 chapters, is encased in the canon of Scripture as a testimony of God's faithfulness. When I come to Jeremiah 8 and 9, I'm trying to get my mind around what's going on here because Jeremiah doesn't flow chronologically. It's not one you would preach through verse by verse well because it's, the, the scenes are, 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 are changing. Warren Wiersbe captures what's going on here uh, better than anyone I've read. These verses seem to blend three voices, God's voice of judgment, the people's voice of despair, which is verse 20, and the prophet's voice of anguish as he thinks uh, or contemplated the ruin of a once great nation. So God declared that the fields would be ruined the cities would be destroyed, the, the people would be either slain or taken captive. It would be like drinking poison, chapter 8, verse 14, chapter 9, verse 15, experiencing an earthquake, being attacked by venomous snakes. This is a hard message to bear. How did the people respond to these warnings? Much like we do when we sit on an airplane and the stewardess tells us how to hook up our seatbelt. Checked out with tears. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Let's give, let's give Jeremiah a handkerchief here. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That's why he was called a weeping prophet. He was called a weeping prophet. And so what we see in chapter 8, verse 20 Instead of turning to the Lord, they fled to their walled cities and they cried in despair. They had missed, when, when it says the harvest is past, the summer's over and we're not saved, it's the people saying, we know that we've missed the God-given opportunity to turn to the Lord and we're suffering the consequences of that. And so Jeremiah, the weeping prophet with a a voice committed to God's glory 
called out to a nation, but healing didn't come. Healing didn't come. Now, Jeremiah wrote another book in the Old Testament that we need to know about as well. It's called Lamentations. It's right after five chapters. It's a lament. It's a mourning. It's a lament over Jerusalem. And in the middle of the catastrophe of God's judgment upon his people for their disobedience, their covenant violations, we find a word of hope like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. This hope would find its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, who's the hope giver and is alive and powerful even to this moment. Jesus would begin his earthly ministry by saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. There is an urgency in scripture that calls us to put aside the mind-numbing distractions, and some of that's happened this week, hasn't it? Where's the Wi-Fi? That's been a blessing in disguise. Because it's forced us to think other places, like maybe engaging in conversation or showing concern for others. To be still and to know that he is the Lord. We're admonished to examine ourselves spiritually in light of the gospel, to see if we are in Christ. We're not to boast about tomorrow because we don't know what a day will bring forth. I was reminded as Doug was reading Psalm 39, and that's a a special passage for me personally that I preached um, from Psalm 39 the Sunday after um, 9-11, where you're just getting ready for work on a Tuesday morning and things happen that change your life forever. You don't know what a day will bring forth. Today is a day of grace and refuge for the weary. There's a place to come by God's mercy, and that is to Christ himself. So may it never be said of you, the harvest is past, the summer is over, and I'm not saved. I'd like to kind of place my thoughts on, on three um, points this morning. The first would be to think with me on the tragedy of this. First, the the lost and frittered opportunities to come to Christ and to serve the Lord. The frittered, the lost opportunities. Noted management consultant uh, Peter Drucker once said, time is the scarcest resource and unless it is managed, nothing else can be managed. The stewardship of time is one of the biggest decisions we face, how we're going to make the most of the opportunities before us. That's why Moses, the only psalm in the the 150 that is attributed to him is Psalm 90, where he says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So in the Old Testament period, virtually all the surrounding religions were nature religions, sun, moon, wind, rain, seasons, all um, ripe for the picking for pagan mindsets to worship. These religions were cyclical or from one moon or harvest to the next, history had no real meaning. 
The Greeks uh, viewed history that way, really went nowhere, but that's not the biblical worldview. In the Old Testament and New Testament, it's rooted in history. God really created Adam. God really created Abraham. God really entered into covenant with, with people and spoke. God really brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. God really sent forth his son in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God brought him forth. And Christians also look forward to the culmination of history and the return of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. So live your life with great care because everything matters. Your life matters. You've been created in the image of God. By His Spirit, for the believer, you have been born again by the Spirit. The Spirit of the living God dwells within you. He has given to you a future and a hope. Everything precious to you is in heaven where you are destined to go with the redeemed. So live your life with great care because everything matters. Look carefully then how you live, not as unwise but as wise. So in this kind of merging of texts here from the urgency of Jeremiah, the morning in Jeremiah, of lost opportunities to Luke chapter 9 where Jesus gives the call of discipleship. Jesus said in, in Luke 9, 23, if anyone comes, would come after me, he must deny himself. So what is the call of God? Why was it in Jeremiah's day nobody wanted to follow? It's because they loved their sin and wanted to do what they wanted to do. Jesus made clear in the call of discipleship that if we would come after him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, dying to ourselves daily, and following him in obedience. He went on to say, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You're wanting to preserve your interests in this world, and in a sense, we all have to battle that. We have responsibilities and duties. We have, we have uh, calls to, to provide and to care, and so that's part of Christian duty. But with regard to our soul's preservation, self-preservation, that, is so, that can be deadly, where we try to protect our interests and what we want in this world over against following this, the Lord Jesus Christ. That ends in... Disaster. Whoever loses his life, Jesus said, for my sake, oh, you're far from being the loser. <laughs> you, get, you get it all in me. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. For what is a, a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Just ask Judas to lose it all. For the world's offerings. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes. What a call to discipleship. So what does this look like? What is, what is God calling us to do? How is he calling us to, to live in these days? I think first, if I could just mention five things briefly under this point. Commit to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Renew your love today, church family, your love for the Lord, for his ways, for his truth. 
um, with increasing hostility to the gospel and any kind of biblical message, people are, people are not interested in, in, and are antagonistic towards uh, the gospel. May we speak the truth in love and stand upon that without apology. We're not ashamed of him. For our Lord who hung on the cross in shame for us, bearing our, our sins, to be ashamed of him now, may it never be. Commit to love him and to follow him. I love that scene in Matthew 9 where Jesus comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and he's in his little booth. He's hated by the Jews because he, they view him as a traitor. He's sold out to Rome and now he's bilking them for uh, exorbitant taxes. And Jesus looks at him and said, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He followed him and the gospel bears his name. Peter said that he left everything behind and, and got up to begin to follow him. Um, so this personal response to the gospel, to love the Lord, not the world, to love his cause, not our own, and to live for Christ. And with that comes, secondly, a commitment to obey the scriptures, to bring the word of God into our life daily, to stand upon its promises uh, to deepen our understanding of, of God's word in every area of life. And to do so because God commands us to treasure it. It increases our faith, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you find yourself lagging in faith and growing lethargic with regard to the things of God, get into the scripture. Turn off other things that you're looking at and listening to and hear the word of God, hear it preached, hear it sung, hear it praised. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It reinforces you in, in, in times of temptation. It prepares you to witness for him. And it is the means by which God makes you like Jesus Christ. Jesus' last prayer on this earth was, um, of course, from the cross, but even before that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's crying out to God, he says in John 17, Lord, God, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Renew your love for the Lord. That'll keep you from missing opportunities. Jesus is first. I don't apologize for that. God is first in my life. That's who I live for, and I want everyone to know it. Secondly, treasure God's word in your life. Bring it into, into your life every day. Thirdly, would be commit to love his church. Commit to be in the body. How many wither away because they have no Christian fellowship, no sense of commitment to the church. They've bought into the lie of contemporary evangelical thought where my faith is personalized to the point that I don't need anybody else but, Je but Jesus and me. But that's not the picture we see in the New Testament at all. We don't see that in the New Testament at all. When we see the early church gather, you get the feeling that they couldn't survive without one another. That's a healthy thought to grab onto. And that's the way God intends for us to grow. Christ loved the church. And when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to love what he loves. And he loves the gathering of his church. This local body is a picture of a universal body of all believers all over the world that are being gathered, God's elect being gathered that will stand before him 
on his throne. And when we meet together, this is the expression that Christ established for his glory and for his fame in this world. Maybe you're saying, well, we don't look like much and we aren't. That's the point. God, ta- God chooses what is weak. God chooses what is debased to bring glory to his name. And our boast is in him. So to be committed to the love of the church, the love of the Lord, and as we worship, that we would sing with all of our heart. I was reading um, uh, just on singing as the one aspect of worship on, on Sunday. There are many aspects of worship on Sunday and corporate worship. There's um, prayer, there is giving, there is the preaching of the word, which is preeminent as we see from the scripture. Um, but singing, how important it is when we gather to sing, to be a singing church. Uh, Garrett Kell said, um, when your church sings a song you don't like, that ever happened to you? <laughs> I'm not really into this song. When your church sings a song you don't like, or sing it anyway because you can bet it, it serves uh, the soul of someone near you. Sing fervently in faith because God may be using your voice to prop up a weary saint. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And one of the ways that we can say so is the way encouragement is passed within the body and when we sing. You know what happens when I come to a challenging song, just as a side, is I've just, through the years, have conditioned myself, okay, this is not maybe stylistically something that's appealing to me, but this is what's being offered right now. I want to dig into the words. I want to know the nuance of what's being said, and I want to offer this as a praise to God. One of the ways that we can be committed to, to, to our local church, which is important in seizing the opportunity before us, I would mention next, um, personal purity. Personal purity. Making the most of the opportunity. Christians are to shine brightly in this world. I think um, this lament in Jeremiah and this call of Jesus and discipleship really is a call to who am I really living for? Is the word of God really coming to bear in how I live my life? Am I pursuing a, a life of purity? Am I pursuing holiness, sanctification, without which I, I can't see the Lord, the writer of Hebrews says. God's word calls us to honor marriage. God calls us to sexual purity. In Hebrews 13, it says, marriage is to be held in honor among all people, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Those are strong words. Just like Jeremiah's words were strong, but they took no effect. A radical pursuit of righteousness. I think of 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Who will abide in the tent of the Lord who may dwell on his holy hill, he who walks with integrity and a pure heart. I think weeks like we've just experienced cause us to think this way. How am I living my life? Who am I living my life for? Am I responding to the gracious um, provisions that God has given to me, access to Christ and his word? 
And then I think fifthly, a commitment to obey the great commission. Am I living for Jesus Christ? Am I living to make him known for the advance of the gospel? Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds on the sand. And it looks good for a while till the storm comes, then it falls apart. But that's nothing compared to the scene of the last day where you build your whole life on sand and you stand before the living God to give an account of your life and you have no savior, you have no advocate and you stand alone to give an account to him. Friends, there's a judgment to come. And may it never be said of you, the harvest has passed and the summer's over and I'm lost. Yeah, it's intense. We have a judgment to face. Richard Dawkins, the probably the most popular atheist in the world, said there's probably no there's probably no God, so just enjoy your life. That's how a fool thinks. I didn't think you were supposed to call people fools, Pastor. Well, I'm just quoting the psalmist. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Just quoting scripture. How long will you waver between two commitments, Elijah said on Mount Carmel? He came near to all the people and he said, how, how long will you continue to limp between two decisions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They were scared to death. And then fire fell. Sometimes a generation is so far gone that the only way God can speak to them is by fire. And the fire fell and the people saw it and they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The second point I'd like to mention is the danger of playing fast and loose with the truth. Back to Jeremiah. The danger of playing fast and loose with the truth. This lament of the people the same might well be said of our own culture, really. Everything Jeremiah says about his culture is true in our culture. We live in a post-Christian time. Um, Philip Ryken in his, um, um, his commentary said, we, we live in a, a day where movies can be titled uh, True Lies. We live in a day of, where people say, hey, it's a true lie. Out of both sides of the mouth, and that can be unpacked, and Riken was helpful to me here, with family relationships that are false. The sanctity of marriage is ignored. Marriage vows are something you negotiate, not persevere to honor. Deception in advertising, deception in politics. I didn't know if you knew that or not. There's deception in politics. Falsehood at the universities. The claim that you can't know truth 
absolutely or objectively. One state university had a sign that read, it's okay for you to think you're right. It's not okay for you to think someone else is wrong. The siphoning of free speech, the closing down of debate, even the church, if, if ever there was a time for the church to fulfill her prophetic role and mission, the church are no longer people of truth. You talk to many Christians, there's an antinomian spirit that prevails uh, through evangelical world where uh, truth is a wax nose, uh, we don't want to be legalistic so you don't stand for anything, do whatever you want, it's all under grace. That's antinomianism. That's to, uh, to be against the law. The law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. And once we come to Jesus Christ, we should even have more of a desire to live a life that's holy to him and flee what is evil. The church has been so infiltrated by the culture, she has nothing to say to it. Trying to be like the world, we come off as insincere and retro. Oz Guinness, who has a great way of anal analyzing culture in the church, said the church is vaporized by critical theories, obscured by clouds of jargon, outpaced by humor and hype, overlooked for style and image, and eroded by advertising. Truth in America is anything but marching on. We're called to stand for the truth. That Jesus Christ is our only savior. That God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There's a rejection of sound doctrine which is traded for movements that have replaced theology with emphases that are relational and therapeutic and charismatic and um, managerial in the sense that they're fixated on church, church growth strategies. Riken says, whatever their virtues, none of these emphases gives truth and theology the place that is required in the life and thought of a true disciple. One of the responsibilities we have in times of decline and times of calamity is to lament, is to, is to mourn. Lamentations does not mean going around, wringing our hands with a sour look on our face. We're not gloom, gloomy, but joyful in the Lord because we know that those who trust in him cannot be shaken. But there's a mourning, isn't there? I had a conversation yesterday um, as a part of a relief team. I just was reminded of that as um, I said to this man we were helping, you know, uh, we're really glad to be here today to help you out, and we do this in Christ's name. And I was wondering if you could give me a few minutes to share um, the message of the Bible. Okay, but I'm really not interested. That's okay. I'll, can you give me five minutes? And so at every point, he said, I, I, you can have Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm warm to God, but not to Jesus. I said, you can't have one without the other. I like the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. And, you know, my thought was, if I believe the way you did, I, I wouldn't like the New Testament either. But at the end of our time, we were able to minister to him and, and help him. 
And I came back around and I, I, I said to him, could I just share one more verse with you? <laughs> one more. You said you're a God, a God guy. Let me share you perhaps the most famous verse in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said that you can't come to the Father, you can't come to God except through me. We live in, in a world that's hostile to that message, but praise be to God, the power of the gospel, as we sow it, it's gonna find fertile soil. I love the way that's described in Luke 13 when Luke kind of captures a ministry moment from Paul's life and he says that they were speaking the word of God boldly and as uh, to, to many as to many who were appointed to eternal life they believed that's how Luke recorded that they were preaching for all to hear and Luke said as many as were appointed to eternal life believed there's one other point and we'll close for today and that would be that calamities and disasters will come and go. And each one is a wake-up call. Calamities and disasters will come and go. And each one is a wake-up call. And I'm taken right to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. Among the geopolitical upheaval that this world continually experiences, wars, Jesus said war, there will be wars and rumors of wars Nation rising against nation, every natural disaster serves as a reminder of our need for redemption. Every calamity that we see in this world is a reminder for us that we need to be right with God above all things. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, Jesus said. All of these are the beginning of birth pangs. So when a woman enters into uh, labor, and there's those initial contractions, those initial birth pangs that grow increasingly intense as delivery draws near. Jesus uses that word picture to say every calamity, every disaster, that's a birth pang of, of things to come, of a judgment to come in our need to be rightly related to him. So the way we should process trials and disasters and calamities and atrocities is through the biblical lens of God's sovereign work and bringing all things together in Jesus Christ. If we're going to redeem our time and wisdom, we had better do it now because there may be no other opportunity. If you're to understand the will of God now, now is the moment that is most important. If you're going to be filled with the Spirit now is, the, uh, is when we need to be filled because he's coming back again. That's the blessed hope to the believer. I hope it's your blessed hope. In Habakkuk chapter three, there's a great benediction that speaks about um, the loss of many things crops and the herds failing, but Habakkuk, Habakkuk's trust in the Lord, even though all these things are true, even though the calamity's true, God's still the same, and he is our hope. In Jeremiah's day, the harvest is past, the summer is over, 
and we're not saved. Have you served Christ as planned? Have you invested your life into others? Have you received Christ as intended? Some of you, no doubt in a gathering like this, you've been under the Christian gospel, you've been under the word of God, but you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Have you received Christ as in, intended? And in your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to delay this. I'm going to delay this. I'm going to, one day I'll get around to responding in faith to Christ. You know you need him, but somehow you think you can manage your life better than he can. You're perilously close to saying what ancient Judah said. The summer's over and I'm not saved. We cannot manage our opportunities to respond to Christ. This is why the Bible emphasizes our need to seek the Lord while He may be found. That's now. The time to serve Him is now. And so, come with the open arms of faith. Acknowledge your sin and your inability to bring righteousness to the table of your salvation and receive what He has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. Often people think, you know, I just, um, I need to get cleaned up first. I need to get this in order first. Then I'll respond to Christ. Jesus didn't say, deserve me. He said, come to me. Because we can never can't deserve Him. All we can do is come, broken, messed up, and he's a master of making things right. Would you bow with me in prayer as we come to the close of this service this morning? What about for you? As you think about this morning of ancient Israel, this, the harvest has passed, the summer is ended and we're not saved. The call with the gospel to receive Jesus Christ this morning by faith is extended to you. Would you call upon him now? For the believer here this morning, have you served Christ as planned? Have you invested your life into others? Are you living for him day by day? applying the cost of discipleship as you think about what it means to be surrendered to him. Father in heaven, we pray in these closing moments of what has been a hectic week in so many regards. We're so grateful to be able to gather. In these closing moments, Lord, may we surrender to you. May we press on in obedience today. And may you strengthen us for your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you feel free to come.